Welcome back to the podcast. We are here today with Enya Daly, who is, um, oh, Charlie's here too. Say hi. Hi, everybody. Hello. Now, this is Enya. Let's try that again. Bloopity, 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 bloop. Next question. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Eliza. And Charlie. And we are here today with Enya Daly. Hi, everyone. Uh, Enya is a relatively recent graduate of NADA. And um, you can't, you can't spelt N-A-A-A-A-D-A. You can't say that word seriously. People think you're a wanker. Yes, this um. is true. <laughs> uh, and is also one of the stars of our production of Revolt. She said Revolt again. Now in its second season in Adelaide. But um, we're not going to talk about either of those things. We are going to talk about a professional development trip that Emmy recently did to the UK to investigate the roles of women and women's storytelling in English theatre and obviously, you know, bring that back and, and applying it in Australian theatre. Yeah. Is that about right? Yeah, that's pretty much bang on. So I was investigating ways of refreshing the representation of women in the Western theatrical canon and looking at ways that I can... Sorry, I can't hear that without thinking of a woman inside of a cannon waiting to <laughs> like the um, like the rooster in Chicken Run. You know how he, they think he can fly, but it's because he was launched out of a cannon. I'm imagining that you went and like squeezed yourself into a bunch of cannons. Oh, you're imagining? Yeah, great. exactly right. Great, That's great, exactly great. how it went down. Yeah, and then I yeah I was looking at ways of I guess ways that I could contribute to fixing the gender equality problem that we still have in the arts. What gender equality problem? We don't have a gender (laughs) equality problem. Get out! (laughs) Nonsense. As you are beginning to discover any other place, basically the way this podcast works is that me and or someone talks about normal, serious, interesting things and Eliza does her very best to distract (laughs) them from whatever they're trying to say, and your job, and my job, yeah. is to get back on, on track. track. Yeah. No, as, I like far as, as far as I'm concerned, a podcast is a success if we have many, many tangents. Too many tangents. That's why yeah. it's called too many tangents. Well, as soon as someone becomes too much of a wanker, you can just exactly. add a joke in. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone in the world is a wanker in some field or another. It just depends which field you're a wanker in. That makes you more or less wanky to the people around you. This is true. If they're a wanker in the same field, then you're just sitting around wanking together, and you know that's doesn't seem that. That's called mutual. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what that is, and it's a little bit less off-putting than just opening the door and walking in on someone who's just having a fab. <laughs> so, anyway, in all, in all seriousness, though, tell us. Tell us what is the, what's the problem <laughs> with gender in this industry, and why? Like, why would you, why would you put all that effort and money into going to learn about that? Why are you passionate about? Well, I suppose we'll start with the personal and then make it politically. <laughs> um, but I have just always really wanted to be an actor, and it occurred to me, perhaps. It was a late age, I was 19 when I got into NIDA, and it occurred to me engaging with the Western canon over those three years that the women in my year weren't getting the same kind of educational opportunities as the guys because we happened to be looking at essentially the dead white male canon and because 
history. Uh, the, <laughs> there are better roles for men. <laughs> now that Eliza's said it, I'm imagining you've seen in a cannon. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I'll find I'll, I'll find a synonym for that word. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just kind of I I really wanted to be an actor and was finding that I wasn't getting to. Uh, engaged with the same kind of meaty roles that some of the guys in my year were getting to engage with and then it really brought my attention to the fact that these are the works that we're still uh, largely programming in Australia and that if that's going to be the case and I think it's important to remember where we've come from and uh, keep engaging with these works because they're fantastic for a multitude of reasons uh, we need to also find ways of making the representation of women in them uh, better. Yeah, broadening the conversation. Mm. Well. Yeah, because uh, I think so. Someone I met in the UK, her name's Lucy Kerbel. She founded this amazing company called Tonic Theatre, uh, and they engage with companies as big as the National in England, and then you know small independent companies as well um, to essentially like help them create gender policies and things like that within their companies and uh, redress the balance. She says that it's it's fine to be putting these works on, but we need to realise that they're windows into a different era and we need to be careful about what these windows into a different era are saying to a modern day audience. Can you unpack that a little bit? So, because... The, the justification, the usual justification for staging, say, Shakespeare or Ibsen or Chekhov, is that they have something to say about the universal human experience mm -hmm. um, and that they, you know, bear some relevance, although maybe relevance is not quite the right word, but they, they, they shine some light on something that is useful to audiences today to consider or to have evoked or to be, you know, represented. So... I wonder if Lucy is contesting that or is she saying that may be true but they're also an eye into a different era or, you know, how, how is she, um, how does she see that universal experience question, I suppose? Well, I think that she's trying to just remind us to be really mindful when we're engaging in works that were created in different social contexts to the one that we're working in today. And if we are going to engage with a piece like The Merchant of Venice or something like that, then, you know, the anti-Semitic sentiments within the piece, not saying that that's Shakespeare's point of view or anything, mm. but uh, we need to be concerned with how we engage with those as practitioners today so that they're not just being displayed uh, to an audience without any kind of comment attached to them. I think she's just saying that it, uh, we can't break the mould with, uh, without being aware of all the work that's come behind us, but we just need to be careful about how we present those works to society today. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so, it's so true with regard to those canonical works that we need to investigate it. What did you, and we need to be really, really cognizant of what they're saying and mm. what they're implicitly saying, even with, if we don't mean it just by virtue of the fact that they were written then and they carry in their kind of DNA the ethics of that era and that time mm. what did you discover either from Lucy or from other practitioners that you spoke to and worked with they were kind of recommending or attempting to do as specific ways of redressing those 
imbalances or presenting those types of stories, what were the real world examples of how that was being addressed over there, particularly perhaps ones that are that were novel to you and that you hadn't seen in the Australian context? Well, I mean, the big obvious ones were things like gender conscious and colour conscious casting or things like that. So I went uh, and I went to a talk at the Globe. It was just about women in theatre in the UK. And one of the actors, her name is Natasha, and I don't want to mispronounce her last name, M-A-G-I-G-I. Um, but she was uh, a larger woman, uh, she, she's a black woman, and she played a hero in Much Ado. And so that was a simple thing of like casting someone not traditionally cast in those roles and giving, I guess, larger women of colour a chance to see themselves represented as a viable romantic <laughs> choice. Um, so there were things like that, uh, gender and colour conscious casting, I suppose. Those are the main uh, ways that people are trying to engage with the canon, but I also spoke to some people, Sue Parrish, who's the artistic director of Sphinx Theatre Company. She's like, uh, she was working during the second wave and is still working today with Sphinx. And she kind of actually recommends that we just don't engage with the canon for a while and that we need to kind of put a moratorium on that and focus on new works for a while. I'm not sure that I necessarily believe that personally because I think, like I said before, you know, we don't want to keep reinventing the wheel, sure, mm. but you need to be, I think, cognizant of what's come before you in order to make anything new. Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective. There's There are a number of writers, you know, here in Australia who've, you know, said things like, I can't remember who it was exactly that said, um, all white writers should just stop writing for 10 years so that works by writers of colour can can take the foot to the fore. And they're contentious ways of looking at it. But I think the other big question around that is where does the canon begin? You know, like if you're only going to do new work, do we stop doing all Carol Churchill? Yeah. You know, or all Carol Churchill before 2005? Mm. Or, you know, it is... is the play we're working on now it's it's become canonical in four years mm. is it banned do we only yeah. do brand new works do we only ever do things once there's big questions about all of that well also the the whole nature of taking something old that's been done a million times and doing it in a new way is it speaks to the conversation in a way that new works can't you know by mm. taking an, a, a Shakespeare play an old play written by an old white guy and you know changing and inverting the way that it's presented is, mm. you know, it speaks to something that new plays written by women can't because it's actively... It's know. an active subversion or, subversion or, or in conversation mm. with, yeah, that kind mm. of thing, yeah. Well, that, I suppose my other question then is, from your observations or from those people that you spoke to, is what are the ver various ways that people are dealing with content that is just out and out misogynistic or sexist? I think of really obvious examples like, um, you know, the Lavinia track through Titus Andronicus where, where Lavinia is the victim of horrible sexual crime and, um, and brutalisation um, mm. at the hands of men and, you know, lots of examples of that. Work that if not really finely considered could be seen to glorify misogyny or sexual violence, but yeah. also right through to things like 
um, Sarah Kane, who is obviously a kind of profoundly feminist figure, but her works include a lot of violence against women and a lot mm-hmm. of um, sexual violence. But then also just smaller examples of women being portrayed as, or, or less, less extreme examples, I suppose, of women being portrayed as p- works that don't pass the Bechdel test or, or works where women only talk about men and, you know, are, are secondary characters or are... Just in case some of our listeners don't know, because I only learned this a few months ago, what's the Bechdel test? So, oh god, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember specifically exactly what every single thing, uh, a parameter of it is, but essentially it's a few guidelines that you should, um, when you're reading a new play or something, you need to check like, oh, uh, are there two women on stage talking to each other about something other than a man? That's one of the parameters. And it just kind of gives you a framework with which to um, engage with plays and you can kind of uh, discern whether this is a play that... Or any piece of fiction. I mean, you know, a novel or a film or a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I believe that Bechdel was originally a cartoonist, I think. Yeah, maybe. But, um, yeah, it gives you uh, something, a framework with which to discern whether a play is, like, uh, fairly representing women, essentially, or, yeah, I mean, if I was a director, I'd kind of use it to decide whether this play is something that I want to program if I'm looking to be promoting gender parity and um, the nuanced representation of women in across a season or something like mm. that, yeah. And that's the main parameter, really, isn't it? That there are that there are women who talk to each other about things other than men. Yeah. In in any given piece, and I think it particularly people apply it to um, action movies a lot. Like mo- almost no action movies mm. pass the best Bechdel test based on that simple one per- first parameter. Yeah, I think one of the rules as well is is the woman driving the action of the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So your question was about. How are people... Yeah, how are people addressing works that display behaviour that is either outwardly Mm. misogynistic, violent, sexually violent Mm. towards women, or kind of latently misogynistic or displays some kind of bias in the way women are seen as either less agentic or less intelligent or less whatever Mm. than men. Like, the other example that pops to mind is always, you know, those classic particularly the Ibsens that have got female leads, but and they're strong female characters, and they're often seen in some ways as feminist pieces, but they're also still really problematic representations of women in this, especially if you just set them in this day and age. You know, you, to make it a museum piece, well, that's one thing. Yeah, how are people engaging with all that stuff? Well, I did see a production of Othello at the Globe, and I was really interested to see how they would deal with the Desdemona track through it. And... To be honest, I don't think they did anything that revelatory with uh, her track. The difference I noticed was that that, uh, the actor played her to be quite strong-willed and she wasn't a kind of like, ooh, I'm an ingenue and I I have no power kind of thing. Ultimately, the dramaturgy of the play does mean that she gets killed at the end and she does end up having very little power but there was kind of I think there was a conscious effort from the the actor playing the role to give her a bit more agency with like just kind of the I guess the tone set in conversations between Othello and Desdemona when he's accusing her and things like that 
So there's like little little pushbacks from like um, from actors, but then I saw something like La Melody de la Mort, uh, Katie Mitchell's piece that Alice Birch actually wrote. Mm. Um, I saw that as part of the Edinburgh Festival. And Katie Mitchell does not hold back from just putting violence against women on stage. And I think, I don't want to say that she trusts the audience to be able to make the judgment that the treatment of this woman is not okay, but it kind of feels like she does put the onus back on us to uh, to judge it rather than mm. uh, instilling judgment within the work because uh, the woman in the show was, Melody Dillamort is essentially about a prostitute and this guy that hires her and he has this deep dark desire to kill her and they keep meeting in this bedroom and um, their relationship grows to be more and more abusive over the span of I think it's weeks or a few months or something like that until one day he kind of gets up the courage to um, go ahead with it. I won't spoil how it ends but uh, yeah it does seem like there's a variety of approaches from people kind of not wanting to mess with the dramaturgy of uh, that Shakespeare sets up in his pieces to like Katie, someone like Katie Mitchell just putting it on stage and going, this is something that exists in the world, we need to see it. Those are kind of the two examples of pieces that come to mind. Um, that what really are you... Kind of... I, I wonder about that, because I'm with Katie Mitchell, I always, I think, I say, if it happens in the world, it should be allowed to be mm. on stages. But if... And, and I, I'm very resistant to pushes to censor or or make programming deci- decisions based on not showing the worst of humanity. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things that I think is really important about, you know, representative art forms, theatre and film and television, mm-hmm. is that at their best, they are able to safely take us to places that we would never go mm-hmm. in real life, dark places, such that we can have a visceral experience or, or a kind of diluted, slightly diluted visceral experience of what that would be like, come to some comprehension and empathy of those events and those you know kinds of experiences without having to go through that trauma mm. as a real person but there's a very fine line between presenting something in that context and glorifying it sometimes yeah i think we run into an issue when we stop programming things because they're painful or um yeah uncomfortable to look at I, I do think that we should be able to program those type of works, but I think it comes down to programming, and it does feel to me like there is an oversaturation of these type of works where women are getting, you know, slapped around and just kind of cry, in crying heaps for the entirety of the show. And I don't see that happening to men on stage mm. or in film nearly as often. And so I do think that we have to be really careful that we're not just showing these. Just showing women as victims. Just showing women as victims, but that uh, all the survivors of assault are women. I think that that's really, um, that is the line that we kind of don't want to cross. And so I think it does come down to like whoever is in charge of programming an artistic season to kind of make sure that there aren't too many shows that are going to present women as uh, survivors of assault and there are none where men are survivors mm. of assault and that's an interesting one actually because I think it would be f- it's fair to say that many people would take umbrage I love the word umbrage 
Um, many people would take on much. <laughs> yeah. With, say, doing a gender-flipped Titus and, and making the Lavinia victim mm. character. I mean, she's not. She's, she's pretty much the biggest victim in, you know, the canon. Um, <laughs> she's such a great example. Sitting inside a cannon, just being like, "No, I'm the bigger victim," and then the cannon goes off, and they're all shot out and killed. <laughs> <clears throat> um, that's why I keep going back to Lavinia because she's, you know, she's kind of the archetypal victim. She's mm. raped, and then her hands are cut off, and then mm. her tongue is cut out. Oh, you know, and then she dies. Oh God! I think I, I think people rising feeling in my throat that makes me want to like, kind of. Is yeah, your tongue retracting? My tongue is retracting like a slide. Just don't think about it. Um, and don't go into the production yeah. of Titus Andronicus. Yes, yes, yes. That's the best way to deal with these things that make us feel bad. Just completely forget about them. Anyway, I think people take umbrage if you say gender flipped the role of Lavinia and, oh, and made totally. it out that, or yeah. if you if you started presenting work that presents, you know, men as the principal victims of sexual violence, mm. or you know, like. Well, I suppose it's, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about the fact that, like, there are so many representations of women as being the victim when actually, you know, like, not, not so much wanting to have men as the victims, but wanting yeah. to have women as the heroes, wanting mm-hmm. to have women as, you know, women in positions of power oh, and roles, yeah, of and, you know, yeah. that aren't, and, and roles that aren't subject, like, that the subject of their role isn't about the way men treat them, you know, mm. it's just about yeah, their yeah. own agency and their own... Yeah, that's absolutely it. I think we just have to be careful about the oversaturation of that type of content. Because mm. that's when I think it becomes damaging. If an audience is, uh, you know, constantly seeing women portrayed as victims, uh, women with no status and no agency, that's when it becomes really problematic, I mm. think. Well, that's why I think, like, you know, it's one of the things that's so clever in Revolt is that is the inverting of those things, but not doing it in such an obvious way as just being like, we'll cast the men as women and the women as men. I mean, that, I'm not saying that that's not a valid way to uh, engage in the conversation about those things, but to be inverting the language and the way of speaking and the way the, the characters interact with each other in such a way that those characters are coming from the real world and the historical context which has evolved in which women are often presented in less than ideal ways. So kind of embracing the actuality of that and how that, you know, permeates into actual culture and actual life and then inverting it from there rather than just taking the thing clean cut and switching it yeah. over because it's not so simple as that. Yeah. I was actually... So Edna and I have both recently watched this terrible, terrible, <laughs> absolutely heinous incredible movie called The Princess Swap. Is that right? Switch. The Princess Switch. Princess which is, is it about Switch. a hair piece? <laughs> <laughs> it's, about, it's about a baker from uh, Chicago who goes to, goes to a small kingdom called something that doesn't exist. From Belgravia. Belgravia for a baking competition. <laughs> and then... And then the, the princess who's about to marry the prince, they turned out looking to both be Vanessa Hudgens, because that's the actor. And then they switch for a couple of days, because she's like, I want to know what it's like to be a normal person in like the world's worst British accent. So funny. Anyway, <laughs> it's great. If you ever just want to completely let your mind turn to mush, <laughs> then this I the highly recommend it. This is, high, this is just certainly the movie for you. But I, I did actually think a couple of times, like, 
my ability to just watch a movie like that, having seen so many other movies about, I know it's like classic, it's just like everyone talks about it, it's the same thing, like, you know, the woman is the princess and then she finds happiness because she finds the man and then the other one finds happiness because she finds the other man. And like, you know, I just yeah. like, it was so easy for me to just like watch that and be like, yeah, okay. That's cool. But I think as well, it's a bit, it, in a way, it was comforting to be able to watch it and switch off because it's a narrative that we have been force-fed our whole lives totally. about, like, and they all lived happily ever yeah. after. And you too can find someone to fall in love with yeah. uh, within the span of two days kind oh, of thing. Oh, it was great. Afterward, I just didn't have to question because I was like, yeah, that's the narrative. I know that's, you know, it's comfy and it's not like... I was happy to feel slightly unsettled by that. Yeah. By the film. I was like, yes. I've clearly progressed as a human being if because now I can recognise that this is so I false and problematic. <laughs> it's like the the revelation that I think a lot of us who were teenagers when Love Actually came out oh. and then and loved it be, and just like in an unexamined way because mm. um, it's fun, you know, and mm. then you get to like, I, I think I was like 21 or whatever and it was like my final second or third year of acting school and I saw this article that was like, Love Actually is a terrible movie and it has no plot and all the women have no agency and it's a totally misogynist film. And I'm like, oh, that's so sad. But, <laughs> yeah, but so sometimes true. you just got to switch <laughs> off your awareness of the world and enjoy a good Christmas movie and Love Actually is still the best one. I'm sorry. I love it. It is pretty fun. <laughs> Anything with Bill Nye. Yeah, he's good. I hope he doesn't turn out to be a sex pest. Oh, he's not one already, is he? No. Oh, thank God. Not, yet. <laughs> not that we know of. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Where were we at with the real conversation about? Um, oh, we were so we were speaking about ways that people are kind of subverting the canon. And mm. things like that. Yeah. So, and, and is there? I mean, obviously, you know, we've just done Revolt, and and Alice's a lot of Alice's work is pretty radical in its approach to how women are portrayed. Mm. What other writers and directors and artists of all kinds out there did you? discover or um see really interesting work from in what that was doing something new and different in this landscape of of how women are represented in our theater you know maybe it's just the pieces that i saw and i saw about 50 different shows over the 10 or so weeks that i was there but it really i was kind of expecting to go over there and to notice a trend kind of regarding the way that women are being represented or the way that the canon is being inverted and things like that. And I didn't. I didn't notice a trend. And I say that there were things like gender blind um, or gender conscious and, and color conscious casting things going on. But anything more nuanced than that really happened on a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted to go over there because as an actor, I've often found myself in a position where I've had to, I'm doing a piece from the canon and I'm playing a, a role that doesn't have much agency. It's a whore. Yeah, it's usually a whore. It's a whore. Or a housewife. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes a housewife. I have been known to play the old housewife as well. Pregnant housewife as well. That's another specialty. <laughs> um, and I kind of have always found those roles challenging because I've felt conflicted about uh, how can I represent these women in a way that's going to be fresh and engaging for the audience they're going to be put before um, whilst kind of maintaining the integrity of the role and so I kind of went over there trying to figure out a blanket answer for that 
And mm. what I learned was that it, there is not a blanket answer for how I can approach those type of roles. There isn't a step-by-step -step manifesto that I can kind of create for approaching canonical works. It is really kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. And sometimes the... So, yeah, it was kind of a confirmation of that more than anything and that um, sometimes as an actor I am going to have... Uh, the agency to, I don't know, say something with a, a gesture or the way I say a line or something like that. But sometimes I'm not going to be able to fix the problem by myself and it's really going to need to be a collaboration between directors and designers mm. and dramaturgs in order for the, for the piece to really sing for a contemporary audience. So that's what all I really have to say on that, like as a, a, a blanket statement about the work that I saw and, and what I learned was that there is no simple answer. <laughs> mm. And what about... I like um, when a question just opens up more questions, just makes you more confused. That's how you know yeah. you're getting in a good direction. The, one of the things that that opens up for me too is what are the ways in which we can, you know, you as a performer or me mm. as a director, whether we're doing a canonical work or a, or a newer work, mm. we can use the characters of women who have little agency or who are rendered you know, overly simplistically or archetypally mm. to kind of crack open and expose that that is what's happening, particularly, mm, I think, with absolutely. women who have a lack of agency. You know, I think I saw a production of Othello here a few years ago that similarly played Desdemona as a really powerful and self-actualised young woman in the beginning. And then her, her lack of power at the end was all the more... For me, it was really made obvious that she was existing in a world and it was set on a military base in, in the um, Middle East mm. um, existing in a world where she had you know limited power really limited power and that was kind of elucidated by that production uh, that was here in Adelaide directed by a wonderful director called Nisha Yelk mm. and and the other character in that, that a, the other that a female or male or Nisha's a woman yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, that the fact that she was coming at it from a, a female director's perspective was, I wouldn't say necessary, but, but it was instrumental in the way that, that rendering of that play happened. And then the other female character in it, her, the handmaid, um, whose name I can't remember, she, she was also played Amelia. as a... Amelia. yeah. She was also played as a, as a very strong, actualised character, and she actually does have a little bit more agency in the play. She actually affects some change. So, I don't know, that's just, that's just a thought. How do we do that, and, and yeah, well, how do we stay cognizant of trying to do that i think both in uh content and then within the industry as well the way that we kind of bring about change in terms of the representation of women both in pieces of theater but also like w within the industry is that we just need to set aside time to make sure that we're talking about it and that's the most it seems like such a simple thing to say, but it's such uh, an incredible solve. Like, you know, if you just set aside a meeting once a week, it doesn't need to be long, but like 15, 20 minutes to talk about this stuff, um, it just ensures that it's still at the forefront mm. of your mind and that it's an ongoing conversation that evolves. Yeah, it's a little bit like, um, it's always, it comes up when you're doing Top Girls, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about, I've never done Top Girl, but I would imagine you would spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the roles of women in Top Girl because it's mm. a play about the roles of women. Mm. Or, or with Revolt, you know, we, we talked about it 
pretty much all the time. Mm. But I think it's important to be to remain really cognizant of that, even if you're doing something that isn't about that, that doesn't where that mm. isn't a isn't a dominant theme, and potentially even when you're doing works that have no women in them, of which there are many good works that mm. are still that still get done, you know. Um, but what does that say? Yeah, just being really aware of what you're saying there and how you're either subverting, glorifying, uh, drawing attention to, or whatever the... Yeah, just ensuring that whatever you're doing, it's mindful. Yeah. And I think as well, just setting aside that time, like once a week, means that no one has to bring it up. The mm. onus doesn't fall on that one feminist cast member to be like, um, <laughs> I, just, I, I just have some questions about what we're doing here. And so it, it doesn't fall on someone to have to bring it up. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting proposal that like in rehearsal rooms and creative spaces you should and maybe it's maybe we should put aside an hour a week to talk about the politics of the representations we're putting on stage generally. Mm. Like the the representations of women, the representations or lack of of people of color, of gender and sexuality mm. minorities, of people of different professions and classes and just go you know, maybe Thursday afternoon or something. You you go. This is what we. This is the part of the play we've looked at this week. What do people have yeah. to say about the representations? Yeah. The. I so agree. Um, because we're we're storytellers at the end of the day, and we have to know what story we're telling. Mm. And sometimes I feel like I go through a rehearsal process, and that has kind of not been at the center of yeah. the process at all. Well, and everyone should be on board with knowing what story you're telling so that they can do their bit yeah. to tell it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and in a sense, possible. it's just like, it's just part of your creative research of, of doing it collectively, of going back and going, oh, this is the, this is the semiotics of what this play mm. does and says. This is the semiotics of how we've staged it and what those renderings and readings mm. say. People are doing either independently or in kind of hodgepodgey ways or, mm. or, you know, piecemeal ways anyway during during a creative process. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. It seems like, though, that if you, were, if you had a cast of people and there wasn't at least one person who, you know, had, had your kind of um, creative and personal and political interest in, you know, the roles of women and the representation of women, that, that those conversations, you know, like, you need that person in the cast. Well, then, in that case, make it someone's job descri description. That's the mm. other soul, I think. Yeah, well, I think, and that's the, that's the beauty of dramaturgs. Like, I always think that's where dramaturgs are the most useful in theatre creative processes, is reflecting back to you as a creator, you know, to me as a director and to actors, what it is you're actually communicating as compared to what you think, you think you're communicating. You know, like, there are lots and lots of roles that dramaturgs fulfil in various you know different roles that they have in the theater and i think the role of the dramaturg as yeah as, as kind of i always say the director is the advocate for the audience like the director is there as the audience's surrogate in the rehearsal room mm. but it's very hard it's hard to know whether you're being that effectively when you're so close to the work whereas the dramaturg yeah, can be a couple of steps further away mm. and they can look at it a bit more systematically i think how the semiotics are are going to be read and, and things that you might not have been aware of as semiotic choices, mm -hmm. how they're going to be read. When you're working as a dramaturg, Charlie, do you ever come into a room going, I am actively going to notice the, the representation of women or the representation of race, or do you come in and you just you notice what you notice and you go from there kind of thing? Because I, I sort of think that this there are certain things that 
you know, a dramaturge of colour will notice that uh, a male dramaturge wouldn't have, have white, you know what I mean, mm. <laughs> um, would, would and wouldn't notice. So to to put it in the dramaturge's job, job description, God, language today, Eliza, in their job description. It's always hard, isn't it? Um, <laughs> in their job description to um, actively notice particular you know mm. particular things outside of maybe their interest or their knowledge or their understanding yeah i think that's a really like that's a really useful thing to to do and for directors and producers to have that conversation with dramaturgs about what they want them to be focusing on at any given point or or, or what the dramaturg thinks is important having those conversations and ensuring that sometimes the focus is on those things but i think you're you're also right that it will be an intrinsically different response like if i as a as a whitey white person put my mind to how the people of colour in a work are being represented you know in comparison to the the white people in the work say I can be very aware of it and cognizant and I can you know I can be woke about it uh, but I'm not going to have the same I'm still never going to have the same visceral response and that's why I think it's really important also to have cultural consultants on yeah, works that feature substantial substantial representation by representation of people it's so of colour. funny though because that seems completely obvious but it could it's very probable and possible and happens all the time that the entire creative team might be male and there's female roles in you know and that yeah you wouldn't be like oh i'm going to bring on a female to consult about female roles yeah well i think actually that does happen far too often i think we sh we should you know like i mean i i don't think that men shouldn't be allowed to direct plays that where no. the stories are principally about women but if you don't have meaningful contribution from women in your creative team but that's a problem that's, in and of itself of know. course of course it's a problem in and of itself but also if the play isn't necessarily about women but they're just there's always going to be some kind of interaction with mm. the feminine because you know women are part of everything somehow everyone's got a mother you know, so like that, you know, the question of, you know, for example, if you, you, you are a male who has just directed a feminist play and you got the advice of many, many females, but in previous plays which have not been, the topic of which have not been feminism, have you actively sought to get um, advice from women about their experiences of the work? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, yes. And this is where I think I'm different to a lot of directors because I see actors as collaborators in that sense in a way that, astoundingly, I think a lot of directors don't. A lot of directors see actors as, as doers and as tools and, and a lot of people are taught by teachers at prolific drama schools to think of actors that way. <laughs> <laughs> but... Ha <laughs> ha! <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I didn't go to Nida. <clears throat> Not saying any schools in particular. No, 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 no schools in particular. No, no, no. no. Um but I but I I always do engage with casts in a way that is you know, conversational and, and collaborative about how they believe they they are being perceived and, and they are presenting in what the what the semiotics of what they're putting on stage is, mm. what they're doing on stage is. There's a whole other conversation you can go into there about like about ego though, being the performer. Yeah. The representation of self and totally. 
you know, do we want to go down that tangent or? No, because I want to make an example of, um, <laughs> I want to bring up the example of a piece. Tangent denied. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I did a production of a Joanna Ray Smith play called Love Child, which is, which is about two women. Mm. And it is a play written by a woman with only female characters. But it's not, but it, it's not about feminism or women's issues. I don't think it was being about women's issues, but it is about motherhood. It's about a child who was forcibly adopted out and then mm. she meets her, her mother. Or is she? Dot, dot, dot. Ooh. And... <laughs> to find out more, go back into the past and see Charlie's production of... I forgot the name of the play already. Love Child. Love Child. <laughs> um, but lots of the conversations we had back, that was with um, Anna Cheney and Chrissy Page, um, lots of the conversations that we had in that production were about me coming to understanding from their personal experiences and their lived experiences and what they were feeling about what was going on on stage such that I could be the outside eye and shape that. So I think yes is the answer in in that case. That's, you know, as an example. Good little tick, you pass. <laughs> as a director and dramaturg, you are now certified ethical. Good. Good. To find out if you're certified ethical, ask Eliza. Ask me. <laughs> And I'll just say yes or no from my very well educated perspective as a upper middle class white woman. <laughs> You're very poor for an upper middle class white woman, Eliza. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's all in perspective, you know. I think us, there's people who survive on less than a dollar a day. I complain about being in the arts, but I've got a roof over my head. I've got these knitting needles and this bit of recycled lycra to make my mum a bath mat, like. <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> to offer context, you know Eliza is knitting <laughs> a bath mat for her mother at the moment as we speak. You know mum will probably be the only person who listens to this before Christmas. Well, surprise! <laughs> <laughs> I meant for my other mum. I've only got one mum. Well, I've got a stepmom, but I would have said stepmom. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> Too many tangents. <laughs> I meant mum. It's an exotic rare flower from something something something. That was a quote from Squab Scrubs that I can't Squabs. <laughs> from Squabs <laughs> that I can't quite remember the beginning or end to. But if you're a Scrubs fan, then I hope you found that amusing. <laughs> oh, I just remembered something mm. actually, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, that we haven't spoken about. I <laughs> just gonna yeah. turn away get from back that. on track. Yes. Yeah. That's the job. Um, I discovered while I was overseas this amazing tool. Well, it's actually very simple, but it's good to have in your mind. Uh, called called Naropa. <laughs> N-E-R-O-P-A. And essentially it just encourages people when they are casting a project to think about all the roles that don't necessarily have to be gendered. Mm. Um, and then just assign them to uh, male, female, trans arbitrarily. So you actually are creating a, uh, creating equality that way as well because it's a, it really just kind of makes you aware of your unconscious bias. Um, you might just decide, oh, well, that, that minor character is a doctor. Let's mm. get a man or something like that. But like it just forces you to examine, well... Why does that character? And where do you where do you draw the line about what roles have to be gendered? You know, I mean, because since we've been talking about it for an hour, since mm -hmm. Titus Andronicus is nominally the king, could it not nominally be the queen? Well, yeah. And 
Uh, yeah, I just got not... really upset about how in a pack of cards the king is better than the queen. But then I realised that that's because if there's a male son, the king is better than the queen. Boy, I'm patriarchy is fucked. And I just, like, I know that, but I just came to a new understanding of it in thinking about a pack of cards. <laughs> and it hit you in I the face all over really again. Hit you real hard. I would like to release a pack of cards where the queen is more important than the king. That's all. You know you could just play cards that way. We should start doing that. We never play cards, but... <laughs> <laughs> we don't never play cards. Next time you play cards... Next time we cards. play cards with Grandma and Pop at Christmas, we'll be oh, like, yes. okay, it's it's the 21st century now, guys. The Queen outranks the King. <laughs> Can we believe... We will and definitely play cards with Grandma And our 86-year-old grandfather will be like, that's outrageous. Charlie, here's all my money. You girls get nothing. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't out, do that. He's a really nice guy. If it does turn out that there is an afterlife, I think we should send them on being nice and woke. So, uh, I think it's not a bad idea. Never too our, late. You want our grandparents to be woke in the afterlife? It's never too late. Yeah, yeah I want our grandparents to rock up and be like the badass rebel hipsters of the afterlife. <laughs> I feel like it's not completely impossible. Grandma has become hilarious with her Alzheimer's. She's just letting loose. It's great. I mean, it's tragic, but it's also, you know, you've got to see the light in it. It's funny. It's not. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right. So coming back from that tangent, um, we actually have to wrap up because we've got to go into a show. Oh, um, but sorry. I want to... Oh, it's just getting into it. It's, it's time. It's time that we have to wrap up. <laughs> no one cares. They won't, they won't listen to it at exactly 4.37pm. <laughs> it's 4.37pm. Is there... <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to ask you one final question, mm. which is what were the best and most inspiring pieces you saw and just like because they were awesome or because they did some of these cool things we were talking about. Mm. And, and also, this, is, this could be quite a long answer, we might be here till five o'clock. What were the most interesting thoughts that you encountered from the people that you spoke to? Like, you know, thoughts for the day. Mm. For people to take on their, you know, if they're listening to this on their walk to work, maybe they can okay, best think pieces about first. <laughs> I think I want to start with the latter, actually. Okay. Um, thoughts. Thoughts. Okay. Today. Go. So, uh, policy is really important, is something that was bought, uh, brought to my attention while I was overseas. Uh, I spoke to Leon Bell, who is an amazing Irish set designer, uh, but she was also kind of the head of the Waking the Feminists campaign um, that happened within the Irish theatre sector in 2016 in response to the Abbey's abysmal Waking the Nation season that had terrible representation problems. And they uh, essentially changed the whole... They, they changed Irish theatre irrevocably in the span of a year by just, like, all the women in the sector, and not just women, men as well, mucked in and were like, right, we're going to fix this problem in a year. And they got really serious about it, put all their energy into it. And um, what they discovered was the way to ensure that any change is lasting is to create policy. It's the only way to ensure legacy. And so every theatre company should have a policy around um, dignity at work, about diversity, about sexual harassment, and they should be easily accessible on their websites. And if they don't have them, they should be working on them uh, or in a working group with other theatre companies sharing ideas about it um, in order to kind of hold each other accountable and then eventually publish something. 
and that was such a kind of a simple revelation for me was mm. that we can have sympathetic or empathetic artistic directors but once they move on what's left behind yeah what's to ensure that it doesn't regress or yeah absolutely i think that and that's the you know you you hope for a world in which you don't ever need to look at those policies mm. you hope for a world in which you know we we spent six months creating a sexual harassment and, and workplace welfare policy and and so far we haven't had to look at it mm. but it brings but it's it's changed the culture of how we work in the rehearsal room and it's there should we ever need it and i think the same you're so right the same is true of gender parity policies or you know just knowing that it exists changes the way you work yeah exactly no no you're right absolutely yeah and i think also it just makes sure that any processes that you do have in place are consistent Mm. as well also another thought was make sure that you archive everything archive the achievements of women you know make sure that you have a program for your indie show that you've just put on because it's going to be important Um, like a major problem that we have with Western theatre history is that a lot of the achievements of women weren't recorded because they weren't deemed important and so we have no way of accessing the information about what women were doing during certain time periods in theatre or if women were writing and things like that there's a lot of missing information and so it's really important that we record and celebrate the achievements of women in the theatre sector moving forward that was another bit of food for thought that and the best things you saw? Oh, that is so hard. <laughs> I'm just like fishing for the next show to do. So basically, just tell me something that you think I would direct really well. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not okay. just fishing that. Home, I'm darling. Laura Wade's new play. Yes. Um, it's on at the National. Well, it was on at the National when I saw it. Um, in kind of a black box studio theatre it's brilliant uh it's set in the present day but it's about a woman who decides that she wants to live the life of a 1950s housewife and that that's just the way they're going to divide the labor within their household she's married to a man it's just the two of them they don't have kids and they make a conscious decision that they want to live like a 1950s couple she's going to be the housewife and he's going to go to work and earn the money. And it's a really interesting premise. So Yeah, totally. Cool. That sounds really fascinating. It's a really brilliant play. Yeah. That sounds like a really interesting address of what we were talking about before, of like uh, plays that represent the lack of agency or the, the oppress, oppression of women in, in interesting and useful ways that actually bring it to the fore while still representing some of those challenges and... Because I think that's a really true, you know, sometimes we forget in, especially in, you know, progressive feminist circles, and especially in late stage capitalism, that there is value in unpaid work. There is value in care work. There is value in, in, you know, tending to the young and that those things don't have a tangible, uh, they don't have a financial dollar amount put on them in the same way Mm. is, doesn't mean they lack value. Mm. And it's not to say that those are roles that should be relegated to women but for women to want to choose to value those things and make and and take up those roles is not in and of itself and also that's exactly what the play is addressing and i think it addresses the idea of choice feminism as well Mm. um the idea that you know if like she's reclaiming the role of women in the home yeah it's really it's really interesting you should definitely have a look at it yeah cool 
So that's that one. I saw, I think, I think that's one that you might be interested in directing. <laughs> yeah. I saw a few other great things like uh, Translations by Brian Frills at the National, which was just like epically nostalgic for me because I am Irish. <laughs> um, and uh, Le Premier Neige by National Theatre of Scotland actually was beautiful. That, I saw that in Edinburgh. And I think that, I don't know what they have in the water in Scotland, but that company pump out some incredible work. I saw something that they did um, in New York a few years ago as well. Uh, I'm just trying to remember what it's called. Anyway, that's the tangent we worked on. The Premier them. Neige, what is Neige? It's French for like first snow, I think. Snow. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I got the first. Yeah. And yeah. not the snow. That's Sorry, interesting because I had the only thing I've ever seen from the National Theatre of Scotland was the James plays, the three. They're kind of like mock. They're not mock Shakespeare's. They're like pseudo Shakespeare's, and mm. they're about the three King Jameses in a row of Scotland, like the fifteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century, and they were not that brilliant. Oh, I just remembered. The Strange Undoing of Prudentia Heart was what I saw in New York. In That's the same... a good title. Yeah, and it's about like Scottish uh, folk tales and things like that. And that it was set in this dingy little pub in the same venue as Sleep No More. Um, I was there the same night. Neil Patrick Harris was there. And they <laughs> used really basic stagecraft and um, lit themselves with candles and torches and things like that. Anyway, but the, the show I saw at the festival, Le Premier Neige, was about... It was quite Chekhovian. It's about a family that are spread out across like Quebec and France um, and Scotland, all reuniting at the matriarch's home to discuss some big important family issue that the matriarch hasn't told them about yet. And um, uh, the message of the the piece, uh, they really don't get along, all the people in the family. And uh, it's a really interesting. It's one of those a white family gathers, secrets are revealed, nothing will ever be the same again. Plays. It is a little <laughs> bit like that, I like but those it was plays. done uh, in a really plays. interesting style. So there was like dance sections. Uh, oh, cool. There were like three languages in the piece, and um, some of the characters were kind of like so repugnant. But the the point the piece was trying to make was that everyone kind of needs a seat at the table in order for us to move forward as a as a society to progress. Um, oh, that's awesome. We, yeah. So Seems that's like a pretty legit legend. metaphor. Yeah. It was much more complex than that. That possibilizes the next test. Well, on that note. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you for joining us, Enya. Thanks for having me. Um, we will uh, speak to you all next time. Thanks for listening. As always, you can go to patreon.com slash house of sand if you would like to support both our podcasting work. Give us money. And our theatre work. Um, <laughs> we're very poor at the moment, but that's all right. We're happy. We're happy but well, poor. That's the main thing. Yeah. So let's finish by going money. 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 Not all your money, just a cup of coffee a month, three bucks a month would be great. Um, that's uh, patreon.com slash house of sand. Obviously, please rate us in iTunes, make comments and posts, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye! Bye. 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 Miss you! Miss you? No. Oh Too many tangents. That's our theme song now. Oh, well, well the Nazis yeah. said good taste in music. We'll give them that. You're just in that one. <laughs> Can we please put that in the podcast completely out of context? <laughs>
They was like good guys in fashion. Nazi fashion was fucking great. Nazi fashion was like, good. Brutalist Nazi and really sexy and leather. Yeah. Yeah, Nazi, yeah, other things were shit. Also, Hitler's also, art gallery Holocaust. is so ugly. Holocausts are a bit shit. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler's art gallery, where's that? Does it it's big? actually called like Haus de Kunst. Mm. <laughs> Kunst. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it sounds like cunt, but it means art. Yeah. All right, let's go, let's go to your show. Yeah.